Hello and welcome to Pali, the Hindu's weekly discussion podcast. I'm Prashant Parmal, your host for today. In an address delivered at the Delhi School of Economics earlier this week, Mr. N. K. Singh, the chairperson of the 15th Finance Commission, warned about how the race to provide freebies to voters could be a quick path to fiscal disaster. He also warned about the possibility of the bankruptcy of several Indian states and also noted that freebies could be harmful for the long-term economic growth of the country. Mr. Singh emphasized the need for to distinguish also between productive and unproductive forms of welfare spending. To discuss this matter, I have with me Ms. Reno Kohli, who is an independent economist and who previously worked at the IMF and the RBI. And Mr. Iman Shu, who is an associate professor at the Jawaharlal Nehru University in Delhi. Welcome to both of you. Uh, I start with my first question. My first question basically about like, uh, one thing is like, is there, as Mr. Singh says, is there really like a sustained trend of like a deterioration in the financial situation of states? And also about like, are freebies actually threatening the financial stability of states, the fiscal stability of states? Ms. Renu, you have a take. When the argument is framed uh, as that of uh, freebies versus fiscal uh, stability, uh, a binary answer is often not possible. So let me just begin my answer by clarifying that there are freebies and there are kinds and kinds of freebies. Many, uh, uh, some of them are extremely justifiable. Some of them are not. And then again, in the next below that, there is a tier as to how as to whom they are, which segment of the population they are targeted against. And you know, we can later on perhaps discuss about farm grown waivers versus free power to the uh, in urban areas to daily, uh, regular income earners. Uh, as far as fiscal stability and financial situation deterioration is concerned. So overall, if we see the welfare spending of the states, if they want to, if, if, if the situation is sustainable and affordable, then that's fine. And it is the prerogative of the political executive out there. Having said that, we must uh, understand or uh, keep in mind what exactly we mean by fiscal stability. And broadly speaking, in common uh, parlance, uh, fiscal stability is a situation in which the uh, a, a government is able to uh, deploy its fiscal policy towards uh, long-term economic objectives, which are uh, high employment and growth rates, and in, in a manner that is sustainable and predictable. So there are no abrupt uh, ending, ending to it. But that leads us to the indicators and what are the measures by which we see that uh, fiscal stability is measured. So let's just look at the trend of the states. I'm going to focus upon this in the case up till in both in the case of the center and the states uh, upon the pre-pandemic situation that is still uh, the year FY20 or 2019-20. The reason for that is it's important to keep aside the two COVID years, particularly 2021 and then again 21-22 because we had three successive waves of the pandemic, in which case the debt deterioration or borrowings of all governments all over the world has uh, gone up alarmingly. And second, in the in, in, in the peculiarly national context uh, of India, a lot of the health uh, uh, and pandemic uh, spending has, the, has devolved upon the states as opposed to the center. So actually, if we just see the study of the state finances of the Reserve Bank of India, you find that the, the RBI stays very clearly 
that from the year 2005 onwards, the, uh, in aggregate, the states maintained their adhered to the limit in terms of their gross fiscal deficit. That is the gap between the total revenue of the state and the total expenditure. Uh, they maintained it under the ceiling of the fiscal responsibility legislation, which allows them to keep it with an aggregate limit of 3% of GDP. And the only years when these limits were breached was 2009-10 and 15-16 and 16-17. 9-10 was a crisis year. And 15-16-16-17 were years of these uh, Uday or the power sector reforms in which the debt was taken on, uh, of the reforms was taken on by the state governments. So in that case, the pandemic has actually led, uh, led to a breach of this. And in, a, in any case, that doesn't matter right now because the pandemic is a once-in-a-century event. Second point is that, you know, what is the outstanding debt, debt trajectory, which is the extent of borrowing which is accumulating? Now, under the fiscal responsibility uh, uh, legislation, the state's overall ceiling is 20% of GDP. And uh, the debt reduction actually progressed quite well in the case of the states. And from a high of 31%, it came down by a good uh, almost uh, 10 percentage points to about 22% of GDP by the years of 2014 and 2015. After that, it has inched up and it inched up about five percentage points to the pre-pandemic FY20. If we look at it and compare this with the central government, the central government, A, has never been able to adhere and come down to the revised FRBM fiscal deficit limits. Number two, the debt reduction in the case of uh, states, it has now gone up with COVID. It came down to 22 as opposed to the ceiling to 20. So it came down to six percentage point and now post-pandemic again it has gone up to 31. Look at it, uh, compare this with the case of the union uh, central government. The central government limit is actually double that of the states which is 40 percent of GDP but even before the pandemic the central government's debt was already touching about close to the IMF measure rate at 70 percent of GDP to 49, uh, 69 percent of GDP and now as is well known it's crossed 90 percent of GDP. So uh, in, you know if you look at fiscal stability as opposed to welfare spending uh, I think the argument to be framed as center versus states and the problem of fiscal stability is more at the states versus the center. No, I disagree with that. The, the problem of uh, fiscal stability is more pressing uh, at the level of the center and, of course, uh, groups, uh, which is the general government, that of the general government. Himachu, your take? Yeah. I, th I think uh, Renu has put it very, very uh, succinctly. Uh, and I think I'll go back to what she was, uh, she started with beginning. It says that somehow we need to reframe the question itself. And I think there are three important issues which are involved. One is what do we mean by the freebies in the sense, uh, are necessarily all freebies bad or how do we define freebies in that sense? Uh, second is the question about fiscal stability and the fiscal uh, situation of the states as such. I think the third one, which is what she was finally came, coming out to, is the whole issue of federalism and the distribution of uh, revenues as well as expenditure between the states and the center. I think in all of these three issues, I think uh, Renu is perfectly right. And uh, we need to look at the whole definition itself. I mean, freebies are not something which is, the moment you use the word freebies, it basically gives you an impression as if it's something which is given for free and it is by nature uh, a kind of a dole, in a sense, kind of a gift that is being given uh, to the population. 
But then FTBs can be of different varieties. And some of the subsidies, for example, including, for example, what the free grain that was being given during the pandemic time when the crisis was really severe, is not something that you can call it as a freebie as such. But yes, certain kind of uh, uh, expenditures which are done under uh, populist pressures or for uh, elections in mind, they may be questionable. But I think one needs to be very clear about what we mean by subsidies and are subsidies essential or not. And I think there, I think the opinion has to be again nuanced by the level of the country, the state, and the need for some kind of a redistributive justice. Given that in the last 30 years, there has been rise in inequality and also some level of uh, uh, distress that has built up in the last seven, eight or 10 years, some kind of a relief or some kind of an effort by the government to provide uh, subsidies to the population may not be unjustified. It may actually be necessary for the economy to continue uh, on its growth path. On fiscal stability, again, she is very, very right. And I must uh, say this, that I really agree with that, that fiscal stability is, again, not just on expenditure alone. I mean, it also has to be a revenue part of it. And given the fact that after 2017, when we are in a uh, GST kind of an environment, which is more or less taking away the power of the states to generate revenues beyond what is left I mean, uh, after the GST has, been, uh, has taken over almost everything, that is also something that needs to be discussed at some point of time. And that is something which is very, very important, given the fact that a majority of the pro-poor expenditure, or what we call as expenditure on basic education, basic health, and other development needs are in the domain of the states. And if you, uh, but while that is there in the domain of the states, their fiscal uh, hand is squeezed and they don't have that kind of flexibility that they used to have. And uh, that is why the fiscal stability is not just a matter of only expenditure, but also revenues. And it is where, this is the question where I think uh, we have seen and what Rina has pointed very clearly, that while the central government has been very tough or has been really demanding on the states to take on the FRBM, uh, fulfill the uh, targets which are given as part of FRBM, the central government itself has not been uh, adhering to any of these, whether it is the debt or the fiscal deficit stance or something. And it, mind you, it also engages in a lot of these, uh, what we call as freebies or we call it as a cash transfers or you call it as some kind of a giveaway. And I must point it out that when we talk about freebies, let's not only be under the illusion that freebies are only uh, subsidy that is given to the, by the government to the poor people or the average person or the Ahmadmi in the country. A large number of subsidies or freebies are also given to the large amount of a large number of corporates and some of them really the big corporates. And those are also, any revenue foregone, foregone is subsidy or it can also be treated as a freebie. And that has also increased quite substantially Although that doesn't basically form the part of the discussion whenever we are talking about freebies or subsidies that goes to the population. And I think in that sense, uh, the central government's uh, role cannot be neglected. It cannot be simply be ignored. You need to look at the whole issue in totality and in relation to the federal structure or the revenue sharing or uh, arrangement that we have currently. And I do think that these uh, points of reference need to be clearly spelled out before we uh, start asking questions as to whether TVs are necessary or they're, they're hurting the fiscal stability in the states. 
Thank you, Masha. I'll move on to my next question. A point that Mr. N.K. Singh talked about is about how poverty reductions, the acts, I mean, the rate of poverty reduction is almost doubled under the Modi government. So I wanted to like, look at how much, I mean, what's your view on like, how much of this poverty reduction has been actually due to growth in terms of like uh, GDP growth and, and in terms of the welfare measures that are actually taken by the central government. Uh, they are, a lot of people talk about how the center has been pretty good at cash transfers to people in certain states and stuff. So that's my question. Yeah. I think let me just verify first that uh, the whatever little, we don't have official poverty estimates after 2011-12. I mean, the only ones that we have are the number of independent studies by uh, private researchers. And I uh, completely disagree with uh, the conclusion uh, about uh, Mr. N. K. Singh's conclusion that poverty reduction has more than doubled under the Modi government. That none of the studies, including the IMF study, the World Bank study, or uh, people who have done it with the leaked data of the consumption survey, or any other things. I mean, there is at least one conclusion which is there that poverty reduction, rate of poverty reduction has slowed down after 2000, uh, I mean, in the, in the, during the current NDA Modi government. So that I think is something which is very, very clear. I think the second point is uh, obviously an issue on which, again, there is a consensus that uh, the welfare measures, and that includes NREGA, that includes uh, the public distribution system or any other uh, social pensions or whatever, that is uh, well known. I mean, these are, these are the ones they do contribute to uh, poverty reduction. And uh, a strengthening of these programs has definitely contributed to uh, poverty reduction. Remember, we are talking about poverty reduction, even if it is slower than what it was there in the UPA regime, uh, at a time when the economy's growth rate has actually tanked. I mean, and, and this is happening, something which has happened before the pandemic, between 2016 to 2019-20. So we had a, a growth rate uh, slowing down by more than half. And if you are talking about uh, poverty reduction uh, still being there, then I think the welfare measures did contribute to a little bit. But I think this the counterfactual is that this does not mean that growth does not have a role to play. And probably if the growth was as good as it was before that, then probably the rate of poverty reduction would have been higher. So I don't think this is a question of welfare versus growth. I think we need both growth, but that growth, which is uh, uh, more equal in the sense, uh, more of the poorer section of the population participating in that growth, and that can that is visible through wages increasing or agricultural incomes increasing or income of the bottom section of the population increasing. That kind of a growth does certainly contributes to poverty reduction. But even beyond that, at some level, the government will have to uh, undertake welfare measures. And those welfare measures have had, and this is a proven thing, the welfare measures have had an important contribution to poverty reduction. I mean, NREG is a good example of that. The food subsidy programs have had a good example of that. And there are several others which one can look at and uh, say that these do contribute to poverty reduction. So I, I think, I think uh, on, on all these issues, uh, that is why I'm a little hesitant on calling them as freebies because they, some of them may be essential. Some of them may be necessary, not just for poverty reduction, but also for growth. Remember, we are in a slowdown simply because the demand in the rural economy and overall in the economy has collapsed. I mean, export demand was obviously had collapsed, but overall consumption demand in the aggregate economy had collapsed. And that is now not a disputed fact. And I think uh, the welfare measures have been able to uh, uh, at least allow uh, 
the, the consumption demand to not fall further. And they may not have been able to lead to a full recovery of consumption demand, but at least they have been able to uh, at least make sure that there is some uh, consumption demand that is there, uh, even if it means transfers. And therefore, they would like that they, they are as much a contributor to growth as they are for poverty reduction. Renu, your take. Yeah, let me just, I fully uh, agree with the points that Himanshu has made. And uh, I just want to add uh, about three or four things to, the, uh, to his uh, uh, explanation. One is uh, specific to the estimates of poverty inclusive of the cash transfers, and uh, which are based on the uh, private final consumption expenditure upon national accounts. Manchu has already pointed this out, but I just want to flag this, that the uh, very idea of uh, establishing uh, or estimating poverty on the basis of uh, private final consumption from the uh, expenditure on the basis of national accounts has was long ago rejected from as uh, back as the early uh, 90s. And therefore, this uh, accepting such estimates and uh, estimating poverty on this basis is simply unacceptable. Also, what is not acceptable is the fact that there is no consumption expenditure survey. So, you know, we have to question these estimates of poverty, both uh, the, the, the World Bank uh, estimation, which is based upon the Consumer Pyramid Household Survey of the CMIE and um, uh, the IMF working paper. Because uh, there are two reasons for this. One is that uh, at a time when the government is claiming that uh, formalization has increased. And uh, so, you know, there's no basis to believe this, uh, that the distribution has not worsened as, a, as an outcome of formalization. Second is that also at a time when free food is being given and additional, instead of the, you know, normal uh, one rupee, two rupee that was being charged earlier in the last two years, plus five kg extra, what is the basis for believing that uh, the claim that it is an extra supplement has 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 no basis simply because uh, 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 how do where is the proof that the underlying income of that particular individual or the median individual or the median median poor uh, has remained intact in the absence of any consumer expenditure survey? There's no way that that can be established. So you know I can give elaborate or explain this for the listeners with a numerical example. Let's assume that the median individual uh, income was, uh, the, the poor income was about, say, 1,000 rupees a month. On top of that, the 35 kg of rice or wheat plus 5 kg extra has been given. So the, so, so the PFC estimates are assuming that that 1,000 rupee income is intact. But where is the basis for that? So, you know, as I pointed out earlier that, uh, you know, all these uh, estimates based in the absence of a consumption expenditure survey are simply unacceptable. And uh, my view is actually even stronger in the sense that there actually all this uh, no researcher should even actually uh, stray uh, forward to even uh, attempt to measure poverty. The only insistence should be on the uh, conduction of a, uh, of a consumer expenditure survey. And the very fact that the 1718 survey was junked and has never been published also creates suspicion that there was uh, uh, the poverty may have. Risen. Uh, last of all, uh, you know, another point to be made about this basis upon the national accounts being, you know, more superior to consumption expenditure survey. Where is the, uh, who is to say that tomorrow or in the future, given the, you know, enormous uh, 
uh, enormous uh, debate uh, and um, infirmities, uh, uh, doubts that the new series has created. Who is to say that in the future some committee may not just actually just chunk these national accounts estimates or lead to substantial revisions? So, as I said, to end with, there's no substitute for a consumption expenditure survey, and that's where the focus ought to be of the researchers or of policymakers, and not, not uh, you know, we. I think all these uh, uh, estimates are not acceptable in that absence of it. Thank you, uh, Himachu. Uh, I would like to bring attention to the point of like uh, the different kinds of spending, like welfare spending. There's obviously productive and unproductive. What's your view on like how? the fiscal spending of states, how, how, like what proportion do you think is like productive and what's like a completely like just based on like getting voters to, you know, getting votes, you know? Oh, well, in a, we, are, we are in a democracy. I mean, mm-hmm. In a democracy where uh, political parties will try and get votes from every section of the population, there is obviously a tendency for the state governments to try and I mean, provide some kind of a relief, some kind of a monetary benefit to the states. I mean, I am uh, certainly in favor of uh, expending, for example, the NREG kind of spending, or for example, uh, the subsidies that are being provided uh, during the food-related schemes, not just in the PDS, but also, for example, uh, midday meal or ICDS. Uh, these are these is go a long way in uh, in the, I mean increasing the productive capacity of the population. So they are not just for I mean they are not just doles in a sense. Uh, a healthier a nutritious and a stronger workforce is something which is a necessary part of a, a growth strategy. And that's something which is we cannot ignore. Or similarly, there is spending on education uh, or, for example, on health uh, that is provided by the state. So all of these are necessary. And I think uh, one has to keep that uh, in mind. And I wouldn't call them as uh, purely a subsidy and, in fact, in, in, fact, in a very uh, counterintuitive sense, one can call these as an investment for the long term uh, for improving the productive capacity of the population. I mean, any spending on education may not have immediate returns, but it is something that is going to be helpful to you in a longer period of time. But yes, there are obviously uh, where state governments have gone astray and gone into uh, all sorts of uh, freebies that you call or, or spendings, uh, gifts. That's, I mean, cash transfers, I'm not in so much in favor of uh, providing just a cash transfer. That is very much fine for pensions, for example, for people who are not able to participate in the labor market, for example, the disabled, or for example, people who are old age infirm, or people who are require that kind of a support. That's a different kind of a thing. But say, for example, uh, subsidies which are linked to simply giving away uh, free electricity or giving away uh, various things, uh, or for example, loan waivers that you talked about earlier. I am not in favor of uh, some of these simply because there are undesired consequences of these, which uh, may have, um, for example, the loan waivers do have a consequence on the whole credit culture, the whole uh, 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 issue, whole whole uh, the financial structure that is uh, there. And I think uh, when we try and look at how why political parties do it, and for them that's the immediate need. I mean, they want to get votes in the immediate run. And loan waivers are a very interesting uh, way of reaching out. But the point is that this basically also obscures or blurs the very basic question as to why is it that the large majority of the farming community is getting into a debt trap every five years or every three years or every 10 years? Because that's something which is a far more important question that needs to be answered rather than providing relief. These are like palliatives. These are paracetamols. 
you give them get the symptoms down but you are not really taking care of the uh, really the disease or the problem which is basically treating these uh, symptoms every now and then so those are things which need to be talked about similar is the case of uh, the subsidies that are being provided in in the name of uh, say electricity again access to electricity is very important and access to electricity to a large majority of the population is very very important that is growth enhancing that is also poverty reducing we need to have that kind of a uh, policy to have more equitable and more accessible uh, uh, more uh, uh, easier access for majority of the population to basic necessity not just electricity for example even telecommunications the basic uh, access is something which is now no longer a luxury but is seen as an essential thing we need to really be talking about some of these issues in the larger context of uh, do they actually contribute to growth do they actually contribute to poverty reduction or are these simply being done to get uh, short term benefits at the cost of long term deterioration in the way these are priced or the way these are uh, market distorting or the way these are uh, leading to uh, some kind of a wasteful expenditure I mean, uh we know about this the electricity free electricity that is being given in various states to the uh, rural communities that some of them have led to uh, disastrous consequences in terms of declining water table in terms of wastage of electricity and various other things and i'm sure there are better ways of uh, reaching out to the farmers providing them uh, support and which is necessary and i'm saying that this support has to increase but one has to uh, go into uh, ways of doing it similarly for example pm kisan i mean remember the pm kisan is a cash transfer that was given by the central government initially announced for 75000 crores then going to 90000 crores but it came at during the same period when the investment in agriculture in real terms was declining and that i think is something which is dangerous uh because it is coming at the cost of long term investment in agriculture which is required which is necessary given the natural resources state of natural resources in our country which has gone into some kind of a deterioration so i think it's not an i it's not, not a binary in a sense so there are nuances to it and one will have to get into those nuances to uh, take a final call on whether these are necessary or not necessary uh one last issue is and i think some of the people have been questioning about this whole uh people I mean, uh, being a subsidies for example those which go into education for example laptops and other things i am not so much of uh, i think some of them have now become necessities you know, some of them no longer a luxury i mean giving subsidies to the uh, uh the telecom sector maybe may have been a, a luxury in 20 years down and back but today uh, uh these have become like almost essential tools of uh, survival increasing productivity knowledge skills and various other things so one has to go item by item go into uh, uh, really what works what doesn't work who is benefiting out of it who is not benefiting out of it all of these issues has to be discussed before we finally come to a conclusion and say that these are right and these are wrong uh, some innovation may be required to really achieve the same objectives uh, without uh, compromising on long term growth or on fiscal stability or uh, really the efficacy of the interventions that is made in the by the population so i think we need a more nuanced understanding than what we are currently engaging in Ms. Rainey, you are here. Yeah, um, I broadly agree with Imanshu about the distinction between uh, power. I mean, there is absolutely no justification for promising, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, two hundred, three hundred, or whatever number of 
units to middle class or urban uh, populations who are who are income earners and by and large regular income earners i have a slightly different perspective upon loan waivers uh, simply in the light of uh, agriculture being a very costly and extremely risky it's it's one of the riskiest uh, activities to undertake compared to say manufacturing or any of the services segment and uh, there are uh, there is uh, always you know uh, how can i put it restructuring and avenues of relooking uh, lend bank loans to corporates to medium and small enterprises and so on in the event of a downturn in the business cycle or any kind of extraordinary shock now in the light of you know incremental weather in immensities the extreme the shocks that the, and including those increasing frequency of extreme events being induced due to climate change and uh, drought conditions occasionally and the rising number of farmers suicides we can see that the distress is extremely very very intense and uh, a, a slightly nuanced uh, not nuanced but uh, we can we can talk about the waivers in the light of uh, these kind of risks and also the fact that crop insurance and agriculture insurance has by and large always failed to offset or to be in appropriate palliative against uh, or to alleviate such kind of shocks in agriculture i agree with himanshu about the spoiling of the culture and because the dispensing of loan waivers is through uh, intermediaries and banking institutions so now we are in an era uh, in, in in a position where dbt has established itself and therefore mechanisms can be found and solutions can be found to deliver the loan waivers uh, or reprieves given by uh, uh, by, by the uh, by state governments uh to uh, to deliver it in such a way that it is immediately taken on the budget and not and the financial intermediaries are not involved in that way it can be delivered it can be targeted towards the poorer or the more distressed farmers there are many mechanisms which can this can be done the second point what i wanted to point out in terms of you know welfare spending in the larger context of being mostly unproductive or productive i've already talked about what is free power uh, implies and what does the uh, what do loan waivers would, would mean to the to the farmers uh, typically uh, in economics we uh, or economic policy makers look at revenue expenditure that is there there are committed spending things like pensions salaries wages and interest payments which are uh, which are necessary or essential right but then there are discretionary spending and typically these would be as uh, pm kisan came up these are basically direct uh, transfers or income support schemes and so on they come under revenue expenditure as opposed to the capital expenditure which would be on building roads bridges transport uh, infrastructure and so on or for that matter even health and education which augment and improve the quality of human capital and therefore increase the Uh, future uh, productivity of labor in the economy so compared to that i mean yes uh, we could say that some of it is unproductive and some of it is productive but the fact of it is that uh, the one is that this tendency is not more pronounced at the level of the center or uh, sorry the states as compared to the center if we see the social sector expenditure there is a rising trend um, at the level of the states but then the rising trend uh, at the level of the center is extraordinarily high and uh, if you look the core core, core sector schemes 
then the revenue spending component is as high as 60, 65 to 68%, right? So almost like two thirds of the expenditure is revenue expenditure and it is targeted at separate groups like say um, FASTs and uh, vulnerables and the poorest of the poor and so on. It also includes uh, uh, Manrega and these kind of programs and all the schemes like uh, PM Avas Yojana, PM This Yojana, PM That Yojana and so on. A lot of it is revenue expenditure and uh, certainly in the light of uh, very, very uh, massive fiscal deterioration overall of general government, expanding deficit and a huge rise in debt. And uh, it's only in the last two years that uh, the, the the interest rates on uh, uh, government debt has going, uh, gone down, but otherwise the mounting interest payments. And I would like to say, Oh, add uh, one more uh, feature here of the overall general government financial uh, finances. Let me just wind up, which is that uh, unproductive and productive has also to be looked at in this light and in the light of mounting interest payments as a fraction of both revenue expenditure as well as revenue receipts. It's far higher at the central government level. It's the former uh, revenue expenditure is about interest payments are about 30%. And as, as a fraction of revenue expenditure and uh, uh, almost 50% of uh, revenue receipts. As compared to that, the aggregate state level is uh, about 13 to 14% and uh, in either case. So I think the need is uh, also to look at the revenue expenditure under different schemes, et cetera, and to see what can be rationalized and simplified and made more productive. Thank you. I guess that's my, uh, all for my questions. Yeah. Thanks to both of you. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you.